Let me, um, let me begin this morning by reading our text. Actually, our texts um, are from first from the book of 2 Timothy chapter 4. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul speaking says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do your best to come to me soon, Timothy. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposes our message. At my first defense, no one came to, my, to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And now Acts chapter 28. These are the last two verses of Acts. Paul says, and it says about Paul, he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. This is the word of the Lord. Do... Um, do you know what you want written on your tombstone? Or maybe better yet, do you, have you have you had a sense of what you would like your obituary to say? Anybody actually written their obituary here yet? I took a shot at it. Um, it's my first draft. Matt was a tall fellow. He's inordinately affectionate with plaid and faithfully cling to the 10-time Super Bowl champion Eagles. You never know. You know, this is the future. So 10 times, that's what I'm... That wasn't a good draft, so uh, a little bit more seriously. Um, Matt knew he was an imperfect man. He loved his wife deeply as his most intimate friend and ally. He loved his daughter, Haley, and son, Nathan, and adopted their spouses as his own. And he loved the eight grandchildren they promised us. <laughs> it's in here now, so. <laughs> Matt loved people, and he gave himself to his friends and invested in everyone God brought to him. Matt loved the church and all its beauty and its mess. Above all, Matt loved Jesus and rested in God's grace and love for him. In short, Matt lived well and he finished well. 
I read an article that challenged you to write a brief obituary. Um, the reason is not because that's necessarily true yet, but because it's what I long to be true. Can you imagine writing your own? You probably wouldn't write, you know, Clark was such a terrible person. You know, like you wouldn't write that about yourself, but, but you, would, you would potentially find yourself aspiring to see what might look like to, to finish in a way that's different than your present condition to, as the Bible calls, finish well. So what would your obituary read? How do, you, how do you want to finish? One of the ironies of finding ourselves at the end of the book of Acts, we've been in the book of Acts walking through um, all of the journey of the gospel as people, men, women, the entire community of faith shared the proclaiming transformative news and message that Christ is, has lived and he has died, but he is risen and his message of good news is for everyone. And we've gotten to walk through all of that. We come all the way to the end, having walked particularly with the Apostle Paul for the last two-thirds of the book or so, finding him all the way in Rome at the very ends of the earth, which was the very mission that Jesus gave to his disciples in, in Acts 1-8, that they would go that far with the good news of the gospel. And here Paul sits in Rome at the center of culture, at the center of life. And it's in that very place, that very Rome, where he would find himself beheaded, according to tradition, by, by Nero, just a couple years after uh, this portion of, of the book of Acts. The portion that I read from 2 Timothy is actually the last things Paul will say. 2 Timothy chapter 4 are his, his final words. He'll never write or whatever he's written. This is the last thing that will be recorded. And he's writing to his disciple, Timothy. And, and in this passage, we, we get to capture a little bit of a picture of, a, a portrait, if you will, of what it means and what it looks like to finish well. What it, the marks of Someone who has, as he'll say, fight the good fight, finished the race, and kept the faith. And so, this morning, we're going to look at this portrait of Paul. In order to live a life that finishes well, what does it look like? Well, I believe there's three pieces that we see in these particular passages. He says, one is that we will stay in the fight. Life that finishes well must stay in the fight we must give ourselves to people, and we must know where we stand. We have to stay in the fight, we have to give ourselves to people, and we have to know where we stand if we are to finish well. So let's stay in the fight. Paul understood when he writes in, in verse 7, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. He understood that, that, that life was, was a fight, that it was a battle, and that it was a battle for, for good. I have fought not just the fight, but I fought the good fight. That there is a long race to, to endure. One of the, um, this morning I thought through a metaphor that hopefully will we'll, we'll hold as we, as we talk through this, this concept of this idea. If you remember, um, Forrest Gump said, you know, life is like a box of chocolates, which is profound in many ways. It really is. Um, this morning I'd like to talk a little bit that life is like um, a whitewater rafting trip. How many of you have been whitewater rafting? Raise your hand, let me see. All right. So this is going to be great. How many of you have not? Let's just go ahead and raise your hands. It's okay. Oh, it's funny. Like, you all went this way. Like, are people like, yeah, I went. The rest of you are like, shame. <laughs> well, whitewater rafting is awesome. Um, I think of myself as someone who's good at whitewater rafting. Uh, I've gone, like, I don't know, like 12 times. 
which is like expertise in my opinion. Um, so much so that uh, one of my favorite places to go is, is the Arkansas River in Colorado. Uh, we've been there multiple times. Uh, on, in the late 90s, uh, we were with on a family reunion, and, and, and uh, we got to this, the Arkansas River again, and, and the, we'd been to the, with this group several times, and, um, and the, the, the rafting guy says, hey, uh, so who, who here has got a lot of experience? And I didn't do this. I was like, oh, yeah, <clears throat> I, I got this. I, guys, family, I got this. And uh, so we get, in the, we get in the boat, and he gives all the instructions, and we get in the boat, and we're on the real flat, calm part, real flat, real calm. And uh, I'm in the, what's called pole position, which is top, front, right, you know? That's the person who's going to call out when you're doing strokes. You guys know this? You know, yep, one, you know? And, uh, and, and you're supposed to be one of the, the, you know, the most formidable, you know, paddlers. Um, I am not kidding. We are not a minute from the, from the, from the edge. And uh, there's like, you know, there's like little tiny little, like, ripples, and he goes, give me two strong ones. And I reach forward. And we, right as I reach forward, we get just a little tiny bump. And thunk, and push <laughs> in the water. They didn't have those little things where you put your foot, you know, inside the, they didn't have that. And so I, that's what I blame it on. But uh, let me just say from an ego standpoint, that was a rough day, rough day for me. But, it, but you understand there's a, there's a precariousness about whitewater rafting. And honestly, that was the first time I'd ever fallen in. And what I discovered in that moment is what you discover every time you fall in. And that is that the current is strong. Now, the guy had told us years from now, for years now, the current is strong. Like if you fall in, there's certain risks the current is strong. And I had no idea. Doesn't look like it, but the current moves. And sometimes it's these, you know, wide, deep areas where the current moves nice and slow. And then there's the narrow, fast, whitewater areas where, where all kinds of dangers are sticking out of the water. I find myself, as I think about the, the rafting experience, that, that there's, a, there's a guide, right? That's how it works. There's a guide. And the guide, in, this, in my story, owns the boat. And he gives you stuff. He gives you a life vest. He gives you a helmet. He gives you a paddle. He gives you lots of instruction too, but on top of that, he's going to give you people to do this with, and, and lastly, he's going to give you a raft. These are kind of the essentials of whitewater rafting. But on top of the tools, he's going to give us instructions, key insights, rules for the river that, that you must practice when you're in the boat and if for some reason you fall out because of a lack of skill, rules for being in the water away from the raft. So here was key instruction, one of the key instruction number one. This is where you're supposed to see that there's two things going on here. Hint, hint. Key instruction number one. Every time they're like, listen to and follow the instructions of the guide. Always listen to the guide. If he says, two forward, and you're going, but we're going so fast into a rapid, what do you do? You do two forward. If he says three back and it's going to spin you backwards, you're like, why are we going backwards down a rapid? You do what? You do three backwards. You follow the instructions of the, not only do you follow his instructions, but you try to do it in unison. You can't, this isn't the time where you go, excuse me, I, I, can we just talk about this for a minute? I, I know we're careening, but can, can we just have a conversation? You know, I don't want to play right now. I'm not sure I want to participate in this particular endeavor over the cliff. No. You don't get to abstain or protest. Everyone is at risk when you do so. So, key instruction number one, always listen to the guide. Always follow the instructions of the guide. Key instruction number two, 
stay in the raft. The raft is the safest, wisest, and the most joy-filled way to navigate the river. Key instruction number three. If you fall out, don't try and stand up on your own. Everything in you is going to make you want to put your feet down and to stand up. Everything in you. It's the most natural thing in the world. Fight the urge to stand up. If you find yourself trying to stand up, what will happen is that your foot will get stuck. It will get caught in a rock. The current will push you over and you'll drown. And it doesn't even have to be that much water. It doesn't have to be that deep. Fight the urge to stand on your own. And... If you find yourself in the water and you don't put your feet down, what you're supposed to do is what? Lean back, feet forward, and awkwardly paddle towards the raft, which is not the best way to swim towards a raft. Anybody agree with that? It's, it's the most awkward, most challenging, most everything you want to do is like, let me get on my stomach. I'm going to do it this way, head first. No, no. Do what he says. Lean back and awkwardly get yourself back to the raft because key instruction number two, stay in the raft. Instruction number four, if you fall out and you get caught in an eddy, which you guys know an eddy, an eddy is where you have water that's going over a rock or some kind, and it creates this upside down turmoil, basically a, a current that's going back on itself and is pushing you down into the water. If you find yourself falling out and you land in an eddy, don't do what is going to be the most natural thing for you to do, and that is to try and swim out of it, to try and scramble out of it. Do you know what you're supposed to do? Remember? You're supposed to, oh gosh, you all forgotten. You're supposed to get in a ball. You're supposed to make yourself small and put yourself in a ball, which is the most ridiculous thing in the world. If your body's getting sucked underwater, the last thing you want to do is like, oh yeah, I'm sorry, let me do this. Like that, everything is pushing against that. But if you do, something crazy is going to happen. It's going to push you down further, which is panicking, and then it's going to spit you out. I was um, on a um, single raft heading down the Nanahala. If you know that basically the Nanahala is like a joke until you get to the end, there's one big moment, which you've been preparing for for two hours, and of course you don't want to screw that up, right? Um, and they're like, hey, it's real easy. You just hit this spot. Don't hit this spot. I hit that spot. Um, and my, my raft got tacoed, which is exactly what it looks like when it just does this and gets sucked underneath in the eddy. And I had, again, heard these instructions many, 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 many times. What, what was shocking to me was, first of all, like it is true, life gets real quiet and real slow when you're panicking inside. And I was getting pulled underneath. And I'm, and I'm trying to get up, but it's not working. And suddenly it's like, okay, they told us to get in a ball. I guess I'll get in a ball. And lo and behold, it just shot me back out. And of course, you come out going like, did everybody see that? <laughs> and of course, nobody saw that, you know? I was almost drowned. All right, never mind. It's like a hole in one. No one's ever there. <laughs> Many people don't want a guide or don't want to listen to the guide at all. Some only take parts of what the instructions from the guide and what they offer, maybe picking and choosing what seems to fit best for my style or, or my way, the instructions and the tools that I think I want to use, maybe a jacket but not a helmet, or maybe a helmet not a jacket, 
They do look silly. When Paul says that life is a battle, it's a fight, it's a long race of endurance, literally, it's, it's wrestling. So he says, he doesn't just mean the um, kind of the cliche, like life is hard. Guys, you know, life is hard. Like it's hard to go through all the things. You know, we all have challenges in our lives. Like, yeah, yeah, life's hard. Life, life's difficult. Rocks in the river. Yeah, rocks in the river. Life is hard. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the life of faith, the life of the Christian, the with God life. The reality that for those who are in Christ, there is a purposeful fight that we're invited into, a struggle, a, a battle for good, not just for our own good, but for the good of those around us that we may push against, that we may go against the ways of navigating the current that most people naturally go into. He points this out, what this looks like in 1 Corinthians 9. He said, do you not know that a race, that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So he says, I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body. I fight and I keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. See, just like finding yourself in a river or being following a guide, the natural state of all humankind, where we all find ourselves when we begin on any of this journey is for every man, for every woman, is the infamous curved in on self. That's, that's the natural state. That's where, that's where we begin. That's where we go to that. Uh, unless we choose, if left to ourselves, unattended, we will exist for ourselves. That is the natural way. That's, that's where gravity leads. We will see every moment, every relationship, every situation as an opportunity to serve ourselves, to, to feed ourselves. That's the natural way to ride the current of life. If we do not fight, if we do not endure, if we do not keep the faith, it is going to be the beginning of hell for us. C.S. Lewis, in his famous book, The Great Divorce, points it out this way. He says, hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others, but you are still, this is the beginning, you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish it could stop. But there may come a day when you can no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just the grumbling itself going on forever like a machine. It is not a question of God sending us to hell in each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. Paul says, Romans 12, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Most of the time, we think that things just sit, right? It's like, like as if you're, you can just stand in the river and it can just go on by. That's, there's, either, there's either movement towards evil or there's movement against evil. There's no other option. 
There's only one trajectory, and that is in the faith in the Christian life is, is to fight, to be alive into the battle for our own hearts and for the hearts of other people. So I believe the Apostle Paul, in his final words, if he had just been whitewater rafting, he would say there's two ways to go down the river towards finishing well, towards ending well, towards having a flourishing, thriving conclusion. He said you can either go alone, no raft, no life jacket, no helmet, no guide, and frantically swimming, trying to go upstream, or trying to stand on your own and getting trapped, using everyone else or anything else to pull you up out of the water, to give you a moment of relief, to make life bearable, to catch your breath at the expense of others. That's, that's the natural way. And then he would say, but there's another way. It's a, it's a paddling hard with, with the, in the raft with our true guide, Christ. And we're, we're listening to him, to his instructions. And, and even, even when they don't seem to make sense or when they seem to be counter to what our natural inclinations are, we choose and trust him to follow him. We fight for what is good, what is good in others, in ourselves. And then, then we find ourselves being the kinds of people who, who toss lines out to people, to the people that have fallen out and to the people that have never been in. To the people who have no jackets, who have no helmet, who don't know what a raft is like. That's what Paul would invite us into. And, and it's tangible because he gives us a very clear example here. He, there's a lament in this passage on, uh, to Timothy about, about Demas. Did you hear it in verse 10? He says, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Do you feel the ache in there? Demas had been one of his disciples, one of the guys who with Aristarchus and with Luke and with Mark had been, I mean, they're they're working together. They were in Ephesus and then they're they're working together. And and, and Demas, Demas is in love with the present world, he says. And he's deserted me. And when he says me, it doesn't just mean like, well, he's abandoned me. Yes, but, but he's left the thing that I'm about, which is the gospel. He is... He has deserted, he has deserted the gospel. And that's the picture of the natural way that we're in love with the stuff of this world. And what's in love with the comfort or with the pleasure? We're in love with the freedom or the self-actualization. We're in love with our position, the stuff that we have, our money, our bank accounts. We're in love for the praise and approval. We're in love with our family. What's fascinating is um, multiple times in the scriptures, like in 1 Timothy 6, uh, if you know 1 Timothy 6, it doesn't say it's not, the, not money that's the root of all kinds of evil, it's the love of money. It says that through it, through those cravings, people have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. That's the, that's the sad story of not finishing well. The, the many people that we've seen in our own lives and that we've seen in, sometimes in public who have, who have peeled off at some point and, and have not re-entered, have not found themselves out of the boat and awkwardly trying to move back towards the only place where real thriving can be and have just gone, jettisoned, jettisoned the jacket, jettisoned the helmet and said, I'm going to do this on my own. I can stand on my own. And that's why John warns in 1 John 2, he says, 
Listen to the words. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eye, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So when we talk about Demas, they in love with this present world. It's like, you can't hold both. And I think, I think this is probably one of the greatest challenges for us as we seek to try and finish well as to, how do we live in a way that doesn't try and hold on to multiple loves? Oh yeah, no, I, no, I, lo- I love God and I, and I want to follow him, but I also really, really love what this career offers me. I really love the neighborhood we live in and what it says about me. I really love the position that at some day will be written underneath my name and I'm going to move towards it. I really love what it says when our kids are this involved and so many and skillful and, 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 and successful in so many activities. I, I like what it says about me and, and so I, I love this and I, and I love this and, and it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Jesus says in Luke 16, no servant can serve two masters. You will either hate the one or love the other, be devoted to the one or despise the other. I want you to notice something. Do you notice how in all three of those cases, this is John, Paul, and, and, and then Jesus, that they all use the language of affection? It, it, they use the word love, like and what it long for, like deeply desire all the way at the core of who you are. This is the thing that, that my affections are centered on, my sense of being is connected to, that my heart is captured by, that my desires are resting on. And Paul says that the people who finish well are the people who love his appearing. I think that's one of the, that's like its, its own sermon, that line. To have loved the appearance of Christ, that he is that beautiful, that precious, that essential, that that he can tell me to do stuff that seems crazy and goes against all my natural desires, but I will do it because I've loved his appearance because my affections are primarily on him. And I am fighting every day to say, no, my affections will not be about this, that, I, that I'm fighting the fight. There's a great risk. We're, we're a church that preaches grace and we will never stop. But there is a risk to think that grace just happens while we don't move at all, while we don't have a fight in us. And that is, that is not true. Like we labor I mean, literally, uh, Hebrews says, let us labor to rest. Work really, really, really hard to belong and to find yourself loving his appearance. Like, it's going to be a ton of work for you to not just go down every single natural flow, every single current that's going to, to not fight against the thing that says, I'm going to lose myself in this. And there's a dying. And, of course, through the dying, there's a living. In what ways and to what degree are you in love with this present world? In what ways are you trying to hold both? Back in the day, it seemed you know, obvious. You know, people would go and they would worship at the temple and they would like, bring their Jesus cross with them. It's called syncretism. It's like trying to make both things work for you simultaneously so you don't have to let go of one life and you can still kind of embrace the good of the second life. Like... It doesn't work. To what way and in which ways 
to what degree are we in love with this present world? And in what ways are we laboring to rest? Are we, are we fixing ourselves? Are, we, are, are you out of the raft this morning? Have, have, you, have you gotten knocked out? Have you jumped out? Like are, will you awkwardly swim back towards? Will you allow Christ to call you back, to tell you where, show you how? Will you invite other people? Throw me a line. I look like I'm on the boat. I'm not. I've fallen off way back there. In order to live a life that finishes well, we must stay in the fight. Secondly, we must give ourselves to people. Next couple sections are shorter, I promise. Um, in rafting, do you know how you get someone back in the water and back in the boat? You dunk them into the water. You lean over. You dunk them into the water, which is, sounds terrible because you're like drowning them. And then you pull them back on yourself. You literally throw yourself back into the boat with them on top of you. I've never done that where it hasn't hurt. It, so you get kneed, you get hell elbowed, you hit your head back on something. You're usually doing it, it's a little bit tense. We have to give ourselves away, give ourselves to people. One of the things we see in Paul, we see four things. One is Paul's hospitable. The end of Acts, it says, he welcomed all who came to him. All who came to him. You know what all means? It means all. I mean, it's people didn't believe, people that weren't like him, Jews, Gentiles, poor, rich, all. Whoever came. And then, of course, some guys are strapped to him by chains. They don't have a choice. They suck with him. But, but all. He welcomed all. We are going to have to continue to fight, to labor, to be the kind of place that will be welcoming and receiving, that we would be the kind of place where you don't have to be of our particular exact kind of brand to feel like you belong, that you can be loved, that you can be invited into a trajectory towards Jesus. May it never be that, that, that race or a particular kind of secondary theological piece or, or economic circumstances are the kings that like, yeah, no, we're, we're these people. And let's just be honest, you don't fit here if you're not. Like we're not, we're not messy enough. As a, as a church, we're, we have our stuff, at least pretend together better than we should. And I know we're messy. Like, we're pretty honest about being messy. Will, will we receive all and then invite towards Jesus? Is, is your home a place of hospitality? Is your, is your life a place? Do you, have you made room for people, for all? Making space for the gospel. So we give ourselves by finishing well, by, by being welcoming to all, by investing ourselves in other people. One of the things you see throughout all of Acts and, and even through the epistles is Paul's constantly pouring himself into other people. I listed off a bunch of people there, Demas and Crestus and these guys. And he did it, knowing, not knowing, but some of them punched out and left him and he did it anyway. We talked about that in vulnerability a couple weeks ago. And, and people who finish well are people who invest themselves in other people's lives. Like, I love my lawn. I love my lawn. I really do. It's not, I mean, like, not love, like, the not good love. The, good, the okay love, you know, the secondary love. Um, but, like, my lawn, it fades. It literally burns up halfway through each summer. Like, and I, I spend time, like, but that's not going to last. Like, the kind of investments we make in one another, the kind of, the kind of risks we take in relationship and love, like, that's the stuff that's going to remain. 
You finish well when you look back on your life and you're like, I fought the good fight. I've, I have these people that I have poured myself into and I've given myself over. It hasn't been easy. Some of them have really hurt me. But, but that's the story of my life that I've invested myself in other people. People that finish well. Life that finishes well is a life that has given itself away, that has invested itself, its resources, its time, and its pain into people. The one thing that truly remains. Uh, third, and I think this is probably one of the coolest, is um, not, only, not only do we give ourselves, but we forgive. I think one of the fascinating things about this last passage is that there's two different instances. One's, a fr- one's friends and one of them's enemies. And in both cases, what does Paul say? Moved it over here. Friends, verse 16. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. What does he say? May it not be charged against them. You know what that sounds like? Father, forgive them. They they don't know what they're doing. They may not be charged against them. I know they they were afraid because it looked like I was about to get killed. And so when when I first stood up, no one was there with me. Paul doesn't hold grudges. He doesn't harbor resentments. He finishes well because he's, he's traveled lightly. He's not carrying a bunch of luggage from, from past relationships that he hasn't reconciled, that he hasn't figured out, that he hasn't... He, even Mark, he asks for Mark to come. The very reason he and Barnabas split back in chapter 15. He's like, hey, Mark, like that guy's... There's been some significant things that happened in him. Bring him along. I'm not holding old grudges about the fact that he was a pain in our first missionary trip. I'm not holding on to that. Like Things have been restored. Things have been made well. Paul forgives. He forgives his friends and he forgives his enemies. Verse 14, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Paul believes that justice belongs to the righteous judge, not to him. Life that finishes well is a life that travels lightly, free of resentments and bitternesses and having offered forgiveness and entrusted justice to God. Are you traveling lightly? Will you find yourself on that day or in those days as you finish looking back and realizing you've been carrying dead corpses of resentment and grudges and anger with you for a long time? Paul gives himself away, gives the truest thing about himself away, and that is the proclamation of the kingdom of God. Verse 31, it says, he lived, he finished is what I'd like to say, he lived proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Which I'd just like to say, isn't it amazing that the book of Acts doesn't end with, and Paul was taken to the gallows and beheaded, the end. It's not about the death of Paul. That's, that's not the story of the book of Acts. That's not the story Luke's been telling us all along. He's been telling us about the gospel moves forward. It is unstoppable. It cannot be thwarted. Oh, you can put people in prison. You can kill people, but it will not be stopped. We finish well when we know that's the truest thing about it, ourselves, and about the very message that we proclaim. That I can talk about this because it is, it is the power of God unto salvation. In order to know, in order to live a life that finishes well, we must stay in the fight. We must give ourselves to people. 
and we must know where we stand. Verse 8, Paul says, There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. You see, because hopefully if you're paying attention, you'll realize, I just told you, like, hey, fight all the urges that are up against you. To take all the things that are pressing up against you in life and culture and flesh and fight them off. And, and if you're paying attention, you're taking that in at all, you should be like, that's not going to work easily. And, and because you know you, you've lived you for a while now, and you're like, this is, this is not just like, okay, stop it. How do we become the kinds of people who, who fight the good fight, who keep the faith, who hold on to what is good? We have to be the kinds of people who, who know where we stand. And Paul says, the righteous judge that I've actually entrusted all of this forgiveness stuff to, that he'll make it right. This isn't my business. He'll make it right. He's the one that's going to give me this crown of righteousness. Paul knows where he stands. He hasn't earned his crown. It has been prepared for him because of his faith in Christ. He, he's like, it, it's, it's mine by the work of another. And so I know where I stand. It is well with my soul. I do not fear. Steve did an amazing job last week talking about how do you look square at death and not live in fear? And here we have Paul looking square at death and, and saying, I, I know where I stand and so I can have peace. You know how I can forgive people? Because I've got peace with God. I know where I stand. I, there's a crown of righteousness. I've been made right. My account is, is, is right with God. All is well. It is well with my soul. Not only is his position assured, but his, his destination is secure. He says in verse 18, and I, and he will bring me safe into his heavenly kingdom. And he will bring me safe. He says, and, and, and by the way, he says like, and God will rescue me from all evil. Which, uh, there's an amazing quote by Tim Keller. He says, um, God always rescues us, sometimes from suffering and sometimes through suffering. Sometimes God rescues us from death, and sometimes God rescues us through death. And so Paul's going like, listen, I don't know how it's going to go. This last time I stood, and I didn't get killed. I don't know what's going to happen next time, but I know this. I know that he will take me. He's bringing me to his heavenly kingdom. I know my destination. I know where I stand, and I know where I'm going. And so it's well with my soul. That's how he has peace. That's why he doesn't seek revenge. We don't just know where we stand, but we know who stands with us. Um, this is, I think this is a beautiful verse. He says, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. Listen to that. The Lord stood by me and strengthened me. What we need to finish well is not a general belief in God, not some general ethereal idea about a religious deity, a theological construct. No, you, you and I need a sense of one who will stand by us, who will stand by us when we're fighting and when we've failed the fight, right? One of the things that... Um, 
the guides that were a part of this thing out in Colorado, before they could be certified to be guides on the river, one of the things that they had to do is they had to, without a raft, shoot all the rapids. You know why? They didn't want them thinking, someone just punched out of my boat during this rapid. I don't think they're going to make it. There's other people on the boat that they're kind of responsible for through all of this. And so, so they had to go through to know that you could go through they had to go through so that they could actually keep the people in the boat safe. They had to go through so that they knew that this was not death, that this was, it was going to be okay. And this is the amazing thing about the gospel is that we have one who is standing by us right now. I, I think I quoted this a, a while back. Actually, my mom sent me the quote. It's from uh, McShane, Murray McShane. Um, I always look to you. like Robert Murray McShane, there you go. Um, who said like, this is a terrible paraphrase because I didn't write the quote down. But um, what, would, what would be true about you if you could hear at all times Jesus in the room next to you praying for you? Like, what, what could you step into? Like, what, what could you believe about what's about to unfold this afternoon or the, or the crappy relationship you have with a family member or the, the thing you're struggling for about with your kids or the, the coworker or the boss or the, the terrible job you don't have or wish you had? Or what, If you could hear him, talking to the Father on your behalf, standing next to you saying, I'm, I'm with him. You see, like, Jesus had to get out of the boat for us. You see, because the wrath of God rested on us. Like, there is no ability to be in the boat of any safety, with any merit. He had, he had to go through it for us so that we could stand with him. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's why we never graduate from that. It's what we hold fast to. It's what we always come home to, is that we have a savior, that we were hopeless and drowning, clawing at other people, trying to make our life work to matter. And, and he said, there's another way. If you give your life to me, I will give my life to you. And I have given my life for you to make you well with God. And that's, that's the beauty of the gospel. And that's the thing we're invited to remember this morning as we come to the table to take refuge in him, once again, in the very context, in the very environment in which he's invited us to do over and over again each week. Psalm 46 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High, and God is in the midst of her. Loved ones, I don't, I don't know what your river looks like now or what it has looked like or what you're anticipating as you head towards a desire to finish well, but I know this, that if you are in Christ, then you are in the river with him. And it can be well with your soul. I don't care how foaming and roaring the waters are. It's the only way to come safe home. It's the only way to finish well, to, 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 to be alive and, and to thrive. And he invites you. He invites you right where you are, whether you've fallen off or whether you're in there paddling away. That your love would be for him because you know his love is for you. So let's pray. Father, thank you for, 
Thank you for the mystery of your grace. Thank you for the cost of your grace that we can look at as you, the, the Son of God, choosing to pay for us that we may be able to stand with you and you with us. Lord, you are, you are the friend who stands closer than a brother. You have made all things possible and you have made all things well. And, and Lord, it doesn't always feel that way. It doesn't always seem that way. But Lord, we want to trust you. We want to listen to your voice. We want to follow your instructions. We want to believe you. In the end, Lord, we want to stand with Paul and say we fought the good fight. We finished the race and we've kept the faith. And we're ready to receive from you the very life that you have promised us in its wholeness that we now only experience in part. Would you do it in us? Would you use these elements to refresh us, to feed our souls, to point us towards you? Maybe to call us back to you? We pray this because of Christ, our great God, our King, our Lord, our Savior. In his name, amen. If you belong to Jesus, this is your meal. This is your opportunity to to come home and to to relish and to refresh, to to be near him in the gift that he's made for you. If if you don't know Christ, if you're still questioning, one of the things that Paul says, he says, do not, uh, do your best to come soon, he says to, to Timothy. And I I was struck by those words. Do your best to come soon. And I would just say, if, if you're kind of holding out, if you're, if you're kind of staying at a distance right now from God and you're, and you're wrestling with what it means to, to, to even be curious about him, don't delay. Do your best to come soon. Don't, don't, don't get hardened. Don't, don't let it become more and more distance, but move towards him. Come and talk to one of us. We'd love to pray with you, talk with you. The grace of God is available to you. And if you believe in him, come and receive this meal with us. Loved ones, Come and receive the grace of Christ.